Hi, and welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and triathlete, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. By now, I'm guessing that most of you will have seen or have heard of the Netflix documentary, The Game Changers. If you haven't heard of it, the film is an entertaining, if somewhat over-the-top, look at the evolution of plant-based diet for athletes. Now, The Game Changers fall into that category of films that include Super Size Me or any documentary made by Michael Moore. That is to say, it's very entertaining, it has a lot of interesting things to say, and is very thought-provoking. Like those other films, though, The Game Changers is personality-driven, clearly has an agenda, and is nowhere close to a work of journalism or an objective presentation of scientific facts. Still, that does not diminish the importance of the message in the movie, nor the conversation that it has provoked. Unfortunately, since the film is so one-sided, that conversation has not always been civil and has prompted the typical kinds of diametrically opposed but equally unobjective responses from the carnivore set. Regardless of what your own diet is, I think that it's always worthwhile doing a little soul-searching about whether or not we could do better. So removing the emotional responses and issues from the question of to eat meat or not eat meat, we can distill the main issues down to a few salient topics that I think are really worth investigating. For example, The Game Changers makes the assertion that vegetarianism has been a long-standing human nutritional strategy that has been very much unappreciated, and that the shift to a very heavy meat-focused diet is relatively recent. But is that really true, or is that a perversion of the real understanding of this field of science? Another assertion in the film is that animal farming has devastating consequences for the environment and for the climate. But is vegetable farming really that much more sustainable and without any environmental impact at all the way the filmmakers would have us believe? Well, I am excited to announce that in the coming weeks, I plan to do a deep dive into these subjects and many more that were raised by this controversial film. I have interviews with published authors and university professors in human paleoanthropology, animal law, and environmental science as it relates to farming and agriculture. In addition, I will speak with nutritionists, including one who works for a professional basketball team, and athletes who have embraced a plant-based diet, as well as those who have stayed with a more traditional approach. My intention is not to change anyone's minds, or to proselytize about a specific way of thinking or eating, but rather to expand on the ideas introduced in The Game Changers and stimulate more thought and conversation on what I believe is a very important subject. How will we feed ourselves in the future? I will keep you posted on when the series will begin and I'm excited to bring it to you. On the show today, part two of my conversation with Elisabeth Sorensen and Beth Ashinsky, two medical students and Ironman athletes who have excelled in both facets of their busy lives in the most incredible ways. We continue our conversation about balancing the demands of training, education, and family and friends, and how what they do can really be done by anyone. Winter is just about here in the Northern Hemisphere, and that generally heralds a retreat by most triathletes to the dimly lit pain caves where trainer rides are often dreaded for the next several months. While many employ Zwift or the Sufferfest to help make these sessions more bearable, others prefer movies to watch while pushing the pedals. But to have a successful trainer ride, you need to have the right movie playing. And that's why I'm excited to bring back the Reels for Wheels segment when my guest Janetta Iwanaki and I will make recommendations of the best films for your next trainer ride. First, though, I have a medical question to consider. On the last episode of the podcast, I discussed the merits and the claims being made by the makers of a device developed to train the respiratory muscles. Recently, advertisements for a different kind of breathing device have been inundating my social media feeds, and this one works very differently, but makes similar bold claims about performance improvements if athletes would only use it. As always, the TriDoc is here to help you understand what the GO2 is, how it's purported to work, and whether or not there is any evidence to back up the manufacturer's claims. And that is coming right up. On the last episode of the podcast, I discussed the evidence behind the claims that the makers of the AeroFit respiratory muscle training device were making, and how that evidence did not come anywhere close to backing up those claims. While another breathing device has been inundating Facebook and Instagram with advertisements, making some equally bold claims, and as always, I became interested. Well, it turns out that I wasn't the only one. Claudia wrote to me to ask about the GO2 that she was seeing all kinds of advertisements for. What is it? What does it do? And does it do what it claims to do, and should she get it? 
The Geo2 differs from the AeroFit and other similar devices in that it does not provide any resistance when breathing in, and therefore does not make any claims to train the respiratory muscles to make them either stronger or give them more endurance. Rather, the GO2 provides resistance to breathing out and performs a completely different function in order to achieve what its makers claim, and those claims are pretty incredible. Now, before I get to those claims and the evidence in support of them, if there is any, we need to first spend a little bit of time talking about respiratory physiology, because the GO2 leverages this in an attempt to improve athletic performance. Our lungs are comprised of billions of tiny little sacs called alveoli. These alveoli are where gas exchange take place as they lie in direct contact with blood vessels that pass through the lungs. When we breathe in, air fills the alveoli and oxygen moves across the alveolar membranes into the blood, while carbon dioxide moves in the opposite direction. When we exhale, that carbon dioxide is blown out and the alveoli deflate. Now in normal healthy lungs, we don't use all of our alveoli. We only breathe with maybe a third to half of the alveoli in our lungs. When we exercise and breathe more deeply, we might use more than that. Now here is where it starts to get a little bit complicated. As I've described, breathing comprises two separate but equally important functions. Oxygenation, where you are essentially bringing in oxygen from the atmosphere, and ventilation, or blowing off carbon dioxide. When we increase our breathing rate, or depth of breathing, we do so to address issues with one or both of these processes. For example, when we start to exercise, our muscles begin to extract more oxygen from the blood, so we need more oxygenation in the lungs than when at rest, so we begin to increase our respiratory rate. Similarly, as more carbon dioxide is being produced, we need to breathe more deeply in order to blow this gas off. The vast majority of oxygen and carbon dioxide are carried by a protein called hemoglobin that is found in red blood cells. A tiny fraction of these gases is also dissolved in the plasma. Now, in healthy lungs, even under conditions of high-intensity exercise, when blood passes through the lungs, it leaves to be propelled to our working muscles carrying close to 100% of the capacity of oxygen that hemoglobin in the blood cells can carry. Patients with diseased lungs, though, often have problems with oxygenation and require some assistance to get oxygen into their blood to bind to hemoglobin. In the sickest patient, mechanical ventilation is sometimes needed in order to facilitate this. Essentially, this means placing a breathing tube into the patient's windpipe and attaching it to a machine that will do the work of breathing for them. There are really two reasons why mechanical ventilation improves oxygenation in patients with diseased lungs. First, it allows for the application of much higher concentrations of oxygen than would otherwise be possible, up to 100% inspired in fact, and second, it allows for the application of positive end expiratory pressure, or PEEP. Now, PEEP has a few different effects in patients who are on a mechanical ventilator, but one of them is that it allows the recruitment of alveoli that otherwise would not be utilized in breathing. Essentially, when PEEP is applied to a patient, more lung volume is oxygenated, and therefore, more oxygen can get into the blood. Phew. Okay, I hope you're still with me. If you are, then you will begin to understand what the GO2 device does and how it is purported to work. Essentially, the GO2 is a portable mouthguard that provides resistance to exhalation or breathing out, resulting in PEEP. When wearing it, so the theory goes, the wearer will recruit more alveoli for gas exchange and improve oxygenation to allow for better oxygen delivery to the tissues and possibly better athletic performance. It does this by the application of PEEP, causing more alveoli to fill. So now that we understand how it is supposed to work, let's look at what the GO2 makers claim and then look at whether or not there's any evidence to back those claims up. Like a lot of these devices, the GO2 has a pretty slick looking website, though with a really poorly made video describing the science behind how the device works. On there, they claim that using the GO2 results in a 6% increase in endurance that they don't really define very well, and a 4% improvement in VO2 max in endurance sports. Furthermore, they claim that these numbers are supported by, quote, level one peer-reviewed, end quote, evidence. And I'm going to get to that in a second. In their social media ad campaign, GO2 promises a 10-minute reduction on a four-hour marathon time, doing nothing else but using their device. That essentially is a 4% improvement and assumes a 100% translation of their claimed VO2 max improvement to the actual exercise. Okay, that's a lot to parse out, but let's look at all of this and see if it holds water. First, let's consider what I referred to as the, quote, level one peer-reviewed, end quote, evidence that they refer to on their website. 
Now, when medical research refers to level one evidence, this is a reference to the highest quality types of studies, basically a randomized controlled trial with blinding of the subjects and the researchers to which subjects received which intervention. Now, the GO2 has been investigated in exactly one trial, and it did not meet this threshold. That is to say that it wasn't randomized, and neither the subjects nor the researchers were blinded to which intervention was used on which subjects. And it gets worse. That one study, it turns out, was conducted by the makers of this device, who you will probably suspect might have had an interest in seeing the results come out in their favor. That trial also had a grand total of nine subjects, five men and four women. And despite the author's claim of statistical significance of their findings in favor of the GO2, I reviewed their data with two research scientists with whom I work, who confirmed my initial impression that, in fact, the GO2 shows no statistically different results when compared to placebo or control PEEP devices in any outcome measure that they looked at. But wait, there's more. Remember the bit about the study being peer-reviewed? Well, researchers say that a study is peer-reviewed when it's accepted for publication in a journal and undergoes revision for publication. The GO2 study has not been published. It has only appeared as a poster at a conference. Getting accepted in this way does mean it was technically reviewed, but it is intellectually dishonest to say that their study was peer-reviewed as a poster submission and a published scientific paper are two very different things with vastly different degrees of review. Second, there are problems with the concept behind how the GO2 is supposed to work that make it pretty hard to understand how it could ever benefit an athlete. Remember how I said that PEEP is used in patients who have lung disease that have problems with oxygenation and that it is administered by a mechanical ventilator? Well, an athlete with healthy lungs is already oxygenating their blood pretty well. In fact, nearly 100% of their hemoglobin is going to be carrying oxygen. So the only way to increase oxygen in an athlete's blood will be to increase the amount of oxygen dissolved in the plasma, not the amount of oxygen bound to hemoglobin, which is already 100% saturated. Now, even if the GO2 did this, this amount is so tiny compared to the amount of oxygen bound to hemoglobin that it would never contribute in any meaningful way to oxygen delivery of the, to the working muscles. Also, the reason a mechanical ventilator is needed to administer PEEP is because you need a closed circuit for the pressure to be applied to the lungs. Breathing through a mouth valve without blocking the nose may not result in the PEEP effect at all. But let's accept for a moment that these concerns aren't valid. Let's just take the GO2 claims at face value and say that using the device does actually give you a 4% improvement in VO2 max. To say that this then translates 100% to a time reduction in a given event is a bit of a stretch. That is simply because VO2 max and run performance are not linked in a one-to-one -one correlation. There are simply too many other variables that come into play. A few other things to consider about the GO2 device. In order to be effective, and I think there are a lot of reasons to doubt that the GO2 is, the device must be worn when exercising. This isn't a device that can be used in training and then gives a benefit when you're racing. So you would have to wear this mouth guard while racing and figure out how to manage nutrition and fluids at the same time, never mind swimming with it. There's also the potential for the dangerous side effects associated with the use of PEEP. In patients who are on a mechanical ventilator with PEEP being administered, there is the potential for incomplete lung emptying and so-called breath stacking, where the lungs become progressively more and more inflated over time. This can seriously compromise breathing function and result in dangerous conditions. Now, it's highly unlikely that the GO2 could cause this, given that there's not a closed circuit and the device does not provide a significant level of PEEP, but the potential is there. Lastly, we know that PEEP compromises cardiac output by decreasing blood return to the heart, and this again is in patients who are on a mechanical ventilator. But I would worry that the use of a PEEP valve in an athlete could cause an unexpected decrease in cardiac output as well, leading to a sudden drop in blood pressure and possibly fainting. Again, the authors of the GO2 study did not see this in their study, but they only looked at nine subjects and then in a very controlled setting while on a stationary bike. So could this happen if the device were widely adopted? It is possible. So after all of this, I am left with the same conclusion that I had for the AeroFit, another device with no really good evidence to back it up and a lot of big unjustified claims. Save your money and breathe easier. Now I should mention, I wrote to the authors of the GO2 paper and the makers of the product and asked them many of the questions that I have mentioned in this segment, and I did not hear back. So that probably also tells you something. 
Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, send it to me at TRI underscore DOC at iCloud.com. On the last episode of the podcast, I introduced you to Elizabeth Sorensen and Beth Ashinsky, two medical students who have managed to have great success at Ironman and 70.3 racing. Both of these women have managed to balance their busy lives with their training regimens for the Ironman and half Ironman distances. How do they do it, and how is it applicable to people who maybe aren't in the medical field? Well, the first episode was pretty interesting, and now I bring you part two of my interview with Elizabeth and Beth. Now, I think that you would probably both agree with me. I know that, again, I, I recognize I'm in a much more fortunate situation. I'm past medical school. I'm past residency. My wife is a physician. We have, obviously, a, we're not in the same position. But um, uh, I, I'm sure you'll both agree with me that triathlon, despite the drawbacks that you've raised in terms of, you know, it, it dominates a lot of your, you know, schedule. It is demands a certain amount of commitment. It certainly got a cost to it uh, financially. I, I feel like triathlon has made me personally a significantly better physician because it gives me um, a way to balance. It gives me a way to have an outlet for the stresses that come with the very stressful job that we all do. Um, and I just feel like uh, it, it's made me not just a better physician, but a better person all around. And I, I would mm -hmm. imagine that both of you probably feel similarly and that it's been worth all these sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was just thinking about it actually since Ironman Maryland and where nothing had gone my way um, in terms of getting stung by jellyfish, crashing on my bike, and now like dealing with all of the road rash and puking on the run. And there was just not a moment during that day where I said, you know, it's over. There was not a moment where I said, um, it's time to go home. And I just think, um, being in an MD PhD program, it's seven years and it's so long and you have to be patient. And it's just about, I, I feel like I just, my lesson this past race was definitely all about learning about patients and just rolling with it. And I think that definitely goes into play in the lab and certainly yeah, so Beth and I had very similar races in Maryland in terms of just everything going wrong. <laughs> um, and I think um, something that I just love about this sport is it um, really connects you with kind of um, a almost a primal need to keep fighting, to endure and to stay alive. And I feel like that um, it's just a part of being alive of wanting to just keep fighting and keep enduring. And I feel like that, um, that ability and desire to fight is within the heart of patients who are battling chronic diseases, um, or battling to stay alive. And I think being an endurance athlete just, um, gives me a bit of an understanding of what it is to connect with that strength. Um, so I actually um, lost my sister-in-law to AML um, this last year. And I think seeing the courage and endurance and perseverance with which she battled her illness really inspired me. Um, and I think um, having never um, faced anything like that myself, I think um, endurance triathlon is the closest I can get to kind of um, having that experience. Yeah, that's very insightful, and I and I was very sorry to hear about that. And uh, oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. Um, so both of you have uh, made it sound like an incredibly daunting task to be as good as you both are, um, and it is. I mean, let's face it: to to be at the top of your age group like you both are takes a a lot of work. But for people who might be listening, wondering gosh, is this for me? I mean, I can't do what these two ladies do. Um, what would you say to someone who maybe is, you know, wondering if they could or, or is thinking that they could never do what you're doing? Um, is there a way for people to participate in the sport, even at 70.3 or Ironman, and not necessarily have it be as all-consuming as it seems to be for both of you, albeit, again, because you both have very demanding you know, lives outside of triathlon. Mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth, why don't you take that first? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I feel like I, um, one thing that I've had to learn this year is managing my expectations and realizing that it's inevitable that being a, 
a med student is going to make it so I can't train um, or race at the level that um, I might have been able to if I didn't have the same life demands and vice versa, um, that I, if I had more study time, I might be able to perform better on my exams. But ultimately, being both a triathlete and one day being a physician are more important to me um, to have both than to have one or the other. Um, so I think that I've just had to kind of manage my expectations in both arenas um, and realize that having both is important. Um, I think personally for myself this year, um, to be perfectly transparent, my goal was to qualify for Kona, knowing that once I start residency, um, doing the full distance might get a little bit more challenging. So I really went all in on triathlon and trained to be the best that I could be this year. Um, but I think I absolutely could have done significantly less training and still have had um, a good experience, still have finished comfortably um, and felt um, proud of my accomplishment for finishing. So I definitely think both of us um, were aiming to kind of be at that top level of getting on the podium, um, but it's definitely doable to complete an Ironman with significantly less training. Beth, mm -hmm. how about your perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I could not agree any more than with what Elizabeth just said. However, um, I think back to uh, my very, very first Ironman that one that summer where I was, I did not have a coach. I did not have any of the proper gear and I did not even know what Kona was. Um, I didn't even know that there was a podium. I, I honestly had the best time. I crossed the finish line in tears. Um, I didn't even have like a plan that I was following. I just said, okay, uh, this Saturday I'm going to ride this amount or I'm going to run this amount. And I never, I never had training peaks. I never had any of this, um, I guess, sophisticated, uh, triathlon gear and technology that I do now. And I would say that that was one of the best experiences of my entire life. Um, just going in there and realizing what you physically can do. And I say this to everybody that even says, I don't know how you do it. I could never do that, that you absolutely can. And it's just mm -hmm. that you don't want to, like you, mm -hmm. you don't have the desire. You, you just, you, you don't want to make a training plan for yourself and you don't want to wake up early and you don't want to go to the gym after work. Like if you wanted to badly enough, you could, and you can do anything. And I, I truly do believe that. And I'm not just saying that as corny as it sounds, but no, I think um, there's a lot of validity yes. to that. Absolutely. Motivation is everything. I mean, um, that's where it begins, right? I mean, the commitment comes afterwards and then the dedication like you guys have clearly is above and beyond what most people would need to do, but yet you've both shown through that dedication and commitment what you're capable of, and it's very impressive. And I, I want to finish the conversation with a brief discussion of how you met. So, uh, Beth, since, oh, you were, yeah. since, since you were first, Beth, why don't you give us your perspective and then we'll ask for Elizabeth on how you met at the finish line of uh, this uh, recent Ironman Maryland. So, uh, I think I was at like mile 18 or so on the run and I was on the ground puking my brains out, like all of my gels, all of my liquid. And then I started to see my breakfast and then my lunch from the day before. And they, they started calling the med tent people and they were like, oh, like, let's get her out of here. And I said, no, 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 I'm fine. Just give me a minute. And then this ER doctor actually um, came over to me and she's like, do you need to take anything? I said, do you have any Pepto? And she says, no, honey, I got stronger. And she gives me a self-brand. <laughs> and we, I was like, all right. And so I, you know, I took the anti-nausea and I got up and I kept going. And then we were just, you know, me and this doctor were discussing, um, just some commonalities. And she, you know, she had also gone to med school here in Philly. And she said, Oh, do you know a girl, Elizabeth, um, Sorensen? She's in your age group. I said, no, I don't know anybody here. And she goes, Oh, like I connected with her on uh, Facebook or Instagram or something like that. Um, she's also a medical student. And, you know, so I was asking her, Oh, where did she go? And, you know, she sort of made this like casual introduction. And then at the, uh, I guess mile, 22 or towards the end, my dad had screamed to me, Beth, um, you're in fifth. I said, there's no way I'm in fifth. Like I've been <laughs> puking out. Like I, my dad, what are you talking about? He goes, no, seriously, the sixth place girl is about a minute behind you. I said, I'm, I can't keep this going. And so I, I just kept going and, um, my dad says, hurry up. And so I just sprinted to the finish. And then, um, I guess I ended up just plopping myself in one of those wheelchairs and then 
here comes Elizabeth, maybe a minute after me. And my dad's screaming, that, that's the sixth place girl. And I turned to her, I said, and I looked at her name tag and I said, oh my God, that's the girl that the doctor was talking about. And so <laughs> I introduced <laughs> now, now I know oh, Elizabeth. <laughs> I know Elizabeth's story might be a little bit less uh, clear because uh, she had a little bit even more difficult of a time and oh. doesn't recall a lot of stuff. But Elizabeth, why don't you tell us mm-hmm. what you do remember? Sure. Yeah. So um, I guess just as a backdrop, um, my pedal had broken at about mile thirty of the bike, so I had kind of exhausted myself on the bike. So the run was just not. I was not having a very fun time. Um, I kind of didn't think I was in contention at all. Um, and I was also very surprised when around about mile 18 or so, my mom said, you're in six and you're actually not far behind the fifth place girl. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I kind of started to pick up the pace as much as I could. And um, it seemed like the gap kept getting smaller and smaller. So um, every time I saw my mom, she would update me on the gap. So she was like, it's five minutes, it's four minutes, three minutes, (laughs) two minutes, it's a minute. And I was just um, kind of, I think, um, my desire to catch her was so strong that I just kind of lost awareness of what was happening on a bodily level. Um, so in the last mile or so, my body literally started breaking down. Um, I, um, in the last like 0.3 or 0.2 after I crossed the 26 mile mark, um, my back kind of bent over and I couldn't straighten it. And like volunteers were coming over trying to catch me. And I ended up just kind of stumbling into the finish line. Um, and, that thankfully I have it on video, but it's just so painful <laughs> to watch. I'm like barely, I don't know whether to call it a walk or a crawl or what it was. But I'll tell you I exactly got... what you call it. You call it, you call it the Siri Lindy walk, uh, because that's what, uh, sorry, not Siri, uh, Sian Welch, Sian Welch. She, uh, she did that. And, uh, oh, the one okay. thing that, the one thing that Sian Welch didn't do when she crossed the finish line was stop her stop garment. Her garment. <laughs> the way Elizabeth yeah. did. Uh, that was probably my favorite part of that whole episode. So I, I'll mm-hmm. confess, uh, I did not know Beth when I was tracking Elizabeth at Maryland, and I was doing the same thing from home, watching the gap come <laughs> down, not knowing a thing about mm-hmm. Beth or, or who she was or what was going on for her day. Uh, all I saw was that Elizabeth was uh, making this uh, this miraculous catch, which just didn't happen at the end. Um, and uh, I've had the great pleasure of uh, now meeting Beth as well. And uh, I can't say that I'm glad you didn't catch her, but it would have been nice maybe if you had tied. And so, you know, I could feel good about it for both of you. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet of you to say. Yeah. Well, um, I can't thank you both enough for being here today. This uh, this has been a really insightful conversation and instructive. Uh, I know that uh, as I've told, I believe both of you, I, I mean, when I was in medical school, there was no way I was doing anything. Uh, I came out of medical <laughs> school. I just was at my 25th medical school reunion, and they were showing pictures of uh, classmates, and my picture showed up, and I almost fell off my chair, because there I was <laughs> in all of my glory, two of what I am today, 250. Pounds, just uh, an enormous individual, and um, uh, you know, not because I was not interested in being active, but just because it just wasn't really a possibility, and it wasn't something that uh, I was prepared to dedicate the way you guys both have. So I'm very much in awe of both of you. I think you've both uh, done remarkable things, Beth. I understand that when you go back to clinical, you are going to uh, stop competing competitively. You're just going to stay fit and um, save it for later or what's your plan? I tell myself at this minute that I'm retired for the next two years. However, um, I just, at this point I definitely want to stay fit until my wedding, which is in May. And then, you know, who knows where, where I'll be, which hospital I'll be at, what my schedule looks like, but I could definitely see myself hopping into, I don't know, a sprint or a, an Olympic for sure, just right. because that's what seems easier. But I know, uh, hopping into those races can be quite painful because you go in, you know, wanting to be, you know, at the level that you expect yourself to be at physically and might not be there, but 
I'm leaving all options open. <laughs> <laughs> and Elizabeth, I know you, uh, you're you signed up for Ironman Florida. Mm-hmm. Is that still happening? I am. Oh. Uh, pending medical clearance. <laughs> so I just had my repeat blood work done today. Um, so it will really just depend on how that looks. I'm following with a primary care sports medicine doctor. Um, and his initial impression was he thinks it's possible if I don't push myself Um so, yes, pending, pending his medical clearance, I'll be at Florida. All right. And then your your plan <laughs> is to is to stay doing this as long as you can. I know you said through fourth year and then hopefully into residency. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Ab- absolutely. Uh, well, um, Beth Ashinsky, Elizabeth Sorensen, medical students, triathletes, Ironman finishers, podium finishers at both the 70.3 and full distance. Thank you both so very much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast. It's been a really, really uh, um, enjoyable conversation. Likewise. Thanks so much for, Thanks having, for us. having us. And I just want to add a little bit of follow-up. I spoke with Elizabeth. She did indeed race and complete Ironman Florida. She said it wasn't her fastest time, but it was definitely a race that she very much enjoyed and will be one that she will remember always because of the way she persevered despite having suffered so much at Ironman Maryland and in the time in between the two races. It's colder and darker in the Northern Hemisphere, and for most triathletes, that means less time spent riding outdoors and more spent inside on the trainer. For many, this means riding in the virtual reality of Zwift. For others, it might mean hammering to Sufferfest videos. But to still more like me, those options don't have as much appeal, and so this next segment of the podcast is for us. Reels for Wheels is what I like to call this part of the show when I am joined by my friend and colleague, Janetta Iwanaki, to discuss movies that we think you should consider watching to make your time on the trainer that much more enjoyable. Janetta is a multiple Ironman finisher, an emergency physician here in Denver, Colorado, and like me, loves watching great movies, especially while putting in time on the trainer. Welcome, Janetta. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. All right. Now, before we begin, I realized in preparing for this new season that I had no good record of all of the movies that we had recommended previously. Obviously, this isn't all that helpful for listeners who, when faced with a long trainer ride, need to have a movie selection at the ready. So I have remedied this uh, situation by adding a page to the TriDoc podcast website, as well as on my TriDoc coaching website, where you can now go to see a complete list of all the films we have recommended in past shows. And obviously, I'll keep updating this as we recommend new ones in new episodes. The links for both of those websites will be given at the end of the podcast. So, Janetta, let's uh, before we launch into uh, our first episode of the new season, let's just revisit what I think you did a great job of summarizing as some of your criteria for what you consider great movies to watch when you're on the trainer. Yeah, now I just have to remember all the cool things I said before. <laughs> um, But I mean, I think for me, what works for me best on the trainer um, when I think about it, and this isn't always true for my movie taste in uh, real life, is really action films that have a great sense of world building, forward motion, and are really engrossing and pull you into the story. Um, Something that is really visually stunning um, is ideal for me. Um, I tend to, when I'm on the trainer, be much more visual than audio. Um, and I like something that doesn't take too much brain power. A little bit's okay, but something that I can really uh, don't mind turning my brain off for a bit so I can focus on what I'm doing with my legs um, and a little bit less on what I'm trying to process and what's happening on the screen. Right. And I know we've also discussed how uh, as much as story is important to move uh, to move uh, the film forward and as much as it needs to be somewhat engrossing, it can't be too complicated or difficult because when you're you know pushing the pedals, you really don't want to be dedicating too much energy to sorting out what the heck is going on in the film. Uh, Yeah, something that pulls you in without necessarily making you think too hard about it. Exactly. So in the past, uh, we have on occasion seized upon a theme where we've discussed a couple of movies that might be linked in a way. And for the start of this season, we're going to do exactly that. Uh, Last year, we talked about John Wick. And this year, we're going to start the season off by talking about the two subsequent sequels, John Wick 2 and John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. So, Janetta, why don't you start with with John Wick 2. 
Yeah. So um, I think actually last season when we started off, I talked about how John Wick, uh, the original, was really my sort of paradigm of a perfect reels for wheels type of movie. Um, it really captured all of those components that we just talked about um, and uh, was really engrossing and thrilling and fascinating without necessarily taking away too much from the actual workout that I was doing. Um, and so I think, um, you know, that's really sort of where I set my bar when I think about whether a film really works for watching on the trainer or not. And I think John Wick 2 um, or John Wick Chapter 2 uh, fits the bill for that as well. Um, it's really interesting. I think in so many ways, this film um, really hits exactly what you would expect from a sequel. It takes the world from John Wick, which is really focused on one man, um, the story of his grief and his uh, search for vengeance. Um, and it, which is a really tightly focused film and really expands it outward to tell us more about the world that he comes from, the world he lives in, and sort of gives us that bigger picture. Um, when you hear about sequels, I always think about, I don't know if you've ever seen Scream, Jeff. No, <laughs> uh, not my talk, genre. <laughs> Scream, Scream and Scream too. They talk about the concept of like, what is a, what is um, a perfect sequel? And they say a perfect sequel is bigger, better, and has a higher body count. And, uh, <laughs> John Wick two actually does that very well. Um, I'll it's say, got some really, in spades. <laughs> and it's got some really fantastic action sequences. Um, one of the things that I loved so much about the original was um, just how both realistic and brutal and yet somehow almost surreal the action felt. And I think this film really captures that as well. Um, you know, Chad, St whose name I can't pronounce, Stahalski, I think. Stahalski, is yeah. Stahalski. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Um, who's the director, um, you know, was a stunt double and direct stunt director for uh, the Matrix films. And you can really feel that martial arts background and that kinetic sort of um, sense um, in his work that kind of follows along in John Wick, too. And I'm not going to lie, the fact that Lawrence Fishburne comes back and gets to uh, have another film that he does with Keanu Reeves really makes the part of my brain that um, loved The Matrix really happy. Um, yeah. And there's another dog. So yes. that's always exciting. Yeah. So we're going to talk about The Matrix later on. I will say that uh, I've been on a mission to introduce my 14-year-old to all the movies that I think she needs to see before she moves uh -huh. out. And uh, I, not that I'm encouraging her to move out anytime soon, but I recognize that it's going to happen <laughs> at some point. And so I'm on this mission to get her to see all these movies and we watched the matrix and then we watched uh, john wick uh we've watched all three chapters together and when she saw Lawrence fishburne come on screen she just turned to me and she was like they're together again she was so excited that's what so, i did on my bike when i yeah. watched it <laughs> yeah that was a nice reunion my dog right. thought i was a little crazy but <laughs> i was very excited yeah I, I agree with you john wick too really does a fantastic job of uh you know you always worry about sequels you always think that there's no way they can you know possibly raise the bar or live up to the first one and yet John Wick 2 really does uh, now again you're coming into these movies with fairly low expectations because you know exactly <laughs> what the movie is all about but they somehow just managed to outdo themselves I mean the cinematography the whole the whole scene in Italy uh, is oh, fantastic yeah. and of course they worked in the pencil shtick because they mentioned it in the first film they yep. they bring it up very early in the in the, the second film Chekhov's pencil, right? Yeah. And then, of course, you know, you have to see him do it at some point. Um, and uh, just just a really uh, well-written, uh, very well done. And I mean, as always, the violence is... If you're not into violent movies, then this clearly is not for you. The violence is so over the top and, and just silly that, I mean, you know, I mean, it, you can accept it. And I mean, accept it as far as you can accept these kinds of things, I suppose. But... The stunt, the, the fight scenes are just so balletic. Once again, uh, the villain in the movie is so uh, absurdly characteristic or uh, caricatured and uh, so wonderfully villainistic. And uh, this whole world that they've created with the high table and the continental, and and now we're introduced to the fact that there's continentals on different continents and. Oh, the whole scene with the sommelier of, of firearms was <laughs> just, yes. I mean, it's like you, you take over the top and then you bring it up another notch and you get John Wick. What are you doing, Jonathan? He burned my house down. You rejected his marker. You're lucky he stopped there. What the hell were you thinking, giving a marker to a man like Santino D'Antonio? It was the only way I could get out. Oh, 
you call this out? What did you think was going to happen? What did you expect? Huh? Did you really think this day was never going to come? Hmm? What does he want you to do? I didn't ask. I just said no. Two rules that cannot be broken, Jonathan. No blood on continental grounds and every marker must be honored. Now, while my judgment comes in the form of excommunicado, a high table, demand a more severe outcome if their traditions are refused. I have no choice. You dishonor the marker, you die. You kill the hold of the marker, you die. You run, you die. This is what you agreed to, Jonathan. Do what the man asks. Be free. Then, if you want to go after him, burn his house down, be my guest. But until then... Rules. Exactly. Rules. Without them, we live with the animals. I couldn't agree with you more. <clears throat> Terrific trainer movie. I, and, and, a, and a movie that you could just watch over and over again because mindless, totally mindless. Which brings us to chapter three, Parabellum. Yes. Um, I, I, you know, I remember being very excited when I saw the trailer. The first person I texted was you to say, oh my gosh, look what's coming. And we both were very and excited what, about it. I think my response was, oh my gosh, there's a horse. Yes, yes. And, and that's interesting because animals take a really big role in this film. Uh, horses, dogs, there's, there's like lots of, uh, and there's some great writing. I mean, so Derek uh, Kolstad is back in a writing role once again. He's written all three uh, with various other writers uh, coming along. Uh, Chad Stahelski is at the helm directing again. Uh, and of course, uh, Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, and really um, a couple of the actors who I've never seen before, but do a fantastic job. Ian McShane in the role of oh, Winston. Oh, he's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. And then a guy who I've really come to enjoy is Lance Reddick, who plays Sharon, yeah. the uh, concierge at the hotel. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things about both the second movie and the third movie was I kept wishing that some of these sort of uh, alliances that John Wick's character would make, I kept wishing they would stick. So, for example, in the second movie, um, I'm blanking on, uh, is it uh, Cassie? Uh, what is the name of the um, the bodyguard of the woman he is sent to assassinate? Uh, he has a relationship with him. And I'm blanking on his name. But anyways, uh, and he forms this. Uh, you almost get the sense that they have a mutual respect for each other. At one point, they end up on continental grounds. They share a drink. They sort of talk about their old times. And you kind of get the sense that maybe together they might, you know, uh, work together at some point, but of course that's not John Wick's world. Well, the same kind of thing happens in Parabellum where uh, he meets up with Halle Berry's character and Halle Berry is such a badass in this movie. She's fantastic. <laughs> um, John, John Wick is like trying to make a, a amends for what he does at the end of the second movie to try and get himself uh, out of his excommunicado. Uh, status and uh, is uh, cashing in a marker with Halle Berry's character and he promises her, no, I'm not going to cause any problems. <laughs> and, and, and she has a great line in response to that. Um, and then uh, she ends up uh, because of uh, because of her one of her dogs being shot gets into uh, all kinds of trouble for both of them. Perhaps you were not listening before. The social contract, the commerce of relationships. You have received a great gift. I have hosted your friend. What do you offer in return? So soft and yet so fierce. I love it, this dog. I will keep it. Excuse me? This will be my gift. This will be how you show me your fail. No. Surely it's the least you can do. No, you cannot keep my dog. Very well. Very well. And I will kill you. Yarabi! Doctor! 
I'm sorry, Sophie. This was for you to learn. Sophia, don't. You shot my dog. I get it. We gotta go. Now. There are terrific turns by uh, actors in this movie. Angelica Houston is in this movie. Uh, Saeed uh, Takmui is in this movie. And they all do a great job of making this world and making John Wick's history even more fleshed out and more interesting. Uh, but again, coming back to this idea of the alliances, you know, John Wick and, and Sharon and uh, Winston seem to have this friendship. I mean, Winston gives him that hour at the end of the second movie to sort of flee. And that comes back to be the linchpin that is the, really the basis for the third movie. Um, but and I'm not going to give away any spoilers, but but just to say that, you know, there really are no alliances in this world. And uh, he really is on his own, although at the end of the movie, you get the sense that maybe the alliance yeah. we just referred to earlier might actually come to pass in a fourth movie, which is clearly coming. Um, but but just when I think. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, the things that 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 really hit again in this movie is it's they've taken it further over the top with the I mean, the action sequences. Uh, there are rapid fire sequences at the beginning, one in Chinatown, one in, in some stables, one on horseback and motorcycle. And then, um, uh, in, uh, Casablanca where you're just like, it is so well choreographed. There's really only a couple of times when you actually sort of can tell that it's choreographed. The rest of the time, it just flows so quickly and so well that it's just astonishing. It's really amazing. The camera work and and how well they have coordinated these stunts are just phenomenal. And I mean, the bit players in here, the, the uh, Jerome Flynn, who I've never heard of, who plays Barada, is he's great. Oh, he's you awesome. haven't seen Game of Thrones, clearly. <laughs> no, I'm not a Game of Thrones. He's person. phenomenal on Game of Thrones as well. <laughs> well, there you go. So you see, I, I mean, all these actors uh, who who have small parts do amazing jobs. And so when there is periods of dialogue, it's always great. And so, you know, it, it, I, I the movies are uh, really entertaining. They really, uh, and this one's the longest one of the series at, at clocking in at about two hours and 10 minutes makes for a great trainer ride. <laughs> so it's a perfect like two hour trainer ride. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you used the word balletic earlier to describe the choreography. And I think they, they actually literally did that in this one, which was really fascinating. That's right. That's um, right. Got a feeling for, uh, you know, Angelica Houston's character, you know, runs this um, ballet institute. And number one, she's a hard ass. Yeah. <laughs> I would be terrified to work with her. Um, but number two, it gives you a sense of like the brutality that goes into something that otherwise looks so beautiful. So you sort of get both sides of that coin. You get the brutal beauty of ballet itself and sort of this beauty that comes out in these like spectacular fight sequences um as well which is pretty impressive and, and the characters i mean these guys who've come up with these characters asia kate dillon's character of the adjuster uh, sorry the adjudicator i i mean what uh like <laughs> i just want to punch her in the face <laughs> right the whole time you it's just so want to like yeah. Yeah. yeah i mean she just she just engender and and the 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 uber ninja zero i mean oh it's yeah just phenomenal i mean and that clearly to me seemed to me to be an homage to uh quentin tarantino because when she meets him and he's cutting sushi i was immediately taken back to the scene in kill bill 
Yeah, where yeah. Uh, she walks into the sushi and he's speaking with a heavy, thick Japanese accent. And then as soon as she slides the coin over, he immediately switches. And clearly he's, you know, it was all for show. And in reality, he's just a master uh, samurai guy. So, um, yeah, I, I just, you know, I can't say enough about these films. I think uh, as a series, again, uh, they are highly entertaining, highly motivating on the trainer. They're not everybody's cup of tea. And I totally recognize that. But if you're looking for something to really get your pulse going and really looking for something to motivate you on a trainer ride these movies are definitely you know top of the list top of the absolutely list. totally agree and actually if you're really like angling to get in your full six hour ride you could do them all back to back although i think i would have an mi at the end of that yeah well they do run and you know unlike a lot of sequels where uh you can't really necessarily tell that they mesh together these ones clearly run like back to back because they one picks up exactly where the previous one ended. So yep. it's easy to go back to back. Yeah. And they're suitable, I think, for any kind of trainer ride. I mean, except for the ones where you don't want to be pushing too hard. But uh, if you've got any kind <laughs> of like, you know, intervals, any kind of steady state stuff, these one, these m- movies are really pretty great for any yep. kind of rides, I think. Yeah, totally agree. All right. Well, Janetta, uh, always a, a pleasure to talk movies and films for watching while on the trainer. Uh, thanks for joining me today on Reels for Wheels. And I'll look forward to our next episode when we will discuss another series uh, also involving Keanu Reeves. We'll uh, pick up on uh, the Matrix films. Thanks for being here today on the TriDoc podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the next one. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Links to the medical references as well as to everything else discussed on the show can be found in the show notes at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. Don't forget to go to my TriDoc Podcast Facebook page where you can give it a like and a follow. There's also video content up on the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. Take a look on it at YouTube at T-R-I-D-O-C Coaching. No space between try and doc. If you have feedback or a question for consideration to be answered on the program, please email me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, visit www.tridoccoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com, where I hope that you will visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another listener question for me to answer, an interview with vascular surgeon and avid cyclist Kent McKenzie to talk about iliac artery endofibrosis, and Janetta Iwanaki will be back with another episode for Reels for Reels. Until then, train hard, train healthy.